G'day, everybody. Welcome to the Community is Our Middle Name podcast, proudly brought to you at Grampians Community Health. My name is Gareth Oliver. Great that you're with me again for another episode. This week on the show, I spoke with Kath Herbert, who is an associate consultant for Hawker Brownlow Education. And Hawker Brownlow Education and Kath uh, go to various uh, community health organizations and other places, schools, what have you, businesses, and do training called Bridges Out of Poverty which, as the name suggests, is about teaching people a little bit about how to assist people to get out of poverty, the poverty cycle, and what poverty actually is. And I think you'll find by listening to this podcast that what most of us think of poverty, or what we think poverty might be, the stereotype of someone who is living in poverty may not necessarily always be the case. And there are many factors that can lead to to poverty. It's not just about how many dollars you have in your bank, although that obviously does play a big part. We talk a bit about the importance of coming together as communities and listening to one another and really trying to break that cycle of poverty. It's a fantastic chat and I was, I'm really, uh, really excited for you guys to hear it. Um, I'm hoping to get Kath back on again to, to speak a bit further about poverty in future episodes. But for now, I will, uh, I'll, I'll stop talking and I'll let you guys listen to the rest of the show. So... This is the Communities of Middle Name podcast, proudly brought to you by Grandpins Community Health for you, your family, and of course, for our community. Kath Herbert is with me this week, and Kath is an associate consultant for Hawker Brownlee Education. And Kath, thanks for coming on the Communities of Mental Name podcast. Not a problem, Gareth. Really pleased to do so. Now, I was at a, a training session with Kath uh, last week, I think it was, Kath. Kath presented the Bridges Out of Poverty training. It was fascinating, and, and I just thought this is a fantastic thing we need to talk about, especially when it comes to our regional community. So, Kath... People may not necessarily understand the concept of what poverty is. They may not necessarily realise that poverty doesn't necessarily mean you're out of work and you're living on the streets and all that sort of stuff. Can you give us a bit of an overview about when you present, what, what you sort of show poverty to be and, and the different types of poverty? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, I think a key thing is uh, when I get invited to go to different communities and different uh, places, um, often there's a people have got poverty under a blanket sort of and 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 it's something they don't want to necessarily address or see and I mean I find myself saying that I really don't care where you live there'll be people doing it tough um, in your neighborhood because the the definition that we use for poverty is the extent to which a person or a family goes without resources and I, and we also very strong on money's just one resource um, people can uh, for instance, some people might have access to money but still be living in, in kinds of poverty, which sounds strange, but, you know, if you're not, if you haven't got connections to other people, if you haven't got uh, resources, emotional resources to help you cope, that's a kind of poverty too. But in the main, we're talking about economic vulnerability, which more Australians are experiencing. I think from from memory, from from your training last week, I think you said it was, was about 3 million Australians are living in some form of poverty? 3.5 million in, in what the statisticians call poverty and I always say, and around that, there's a lot of Australians 
doing it tough. Yeah, and, and it's interesting you, you mentioned the blanket stuff as well because it was another thing that, that we touched on. And I'm going to go back to the to the training because it's quite fresh in my mind. I was talking to you about the town where I live is around 350 people. Now, when people think of poverty, especially people in the in the bush might think of poverty, they don't necessarily think of the little small towns having people who are really doing it tough and living in poverty. At one stage here, we had a person who was sleeping in the scoreboard at the local footy oval because that was uh, the only roof over their head they could find. And, and uh, you know, around our local area, you do see people who are camping at footy grounds or the lakes or the campgrounds or wherever, living in their, in their caravans. Do you think people understand the extent that that happens in, in regional areas? No, no, no way. And I think it's such a transitory problem too often, like people people are on the move and it's, there are statistics around at the moment to talk about, you know, 600,000 women aged between 55 to 60, add to that more people, who for whatever reason are homeless um, and so many things can cause that for people um, and they're just ordinary stuff that can rise up and grab you like being becoming unwell or a major provider uh, being retrenched or financial circumstances where you're overcommitted and you didn't expect this, which is, of course, the new one that's coming to get us now. People who've taken out a very large mortgage and, and the, coming out of the latest census data that hit this week, um, those people are going to be doing it tougher. So if if you have to pay more than more than a third of what you earn on your um, accommodation on your house, you're in trouble. And there's a lot of Australians living paying a half of what they earn. And particularly if a household's only got one income, you're going to be doing it tough based on what people earn. So you can look at the data and crunch it. But for me, I've lived in the country and I've lived in the city and the face of poverty is very different. And I think in in country areas, you know, there's a kind of stoicism about, you know, people have always done it tough at different times on the land. You know, a drought can come, um, a flood can come, all sorts of circumstances. So there's a kind of, look, you know, an understanding that it happens in the country, you know, and I think I talk about living in the country and having neighbours who who really, when I think about it, their household circumstance was really quite poor. Um, but I never thought of them as being in poverty. It's just how living on the land and rurally and with a distance from other places, um, how it can look for you. Yeah, and, and the other thing I talk about too is you, you can have hundreds of acres and sheds full of machinery, but day to day you can be doing it pretty tough doesn't mean you've got access to income. Yeah, then that's just touching on that, that economic poverty because there's also the, as you, you touched on there, uh, the, the, the poverty around the, the lack of access to services, which is a big thing in, in regional areas. I, uh, I'm not sure if you, if you heard my podcast I, re- I did last week with um, uh, uh, one of the members of the Karen community here in Ararat who was talking about some of the Karen people in in nil who were traveling four hours to go to the supermarket to get groceries that they knew how to cook with. And that's not even taking into account things like healthcare and especially allied health, which is very hard to find. So there's all these different layers of poverty, isn't there? There is, there is. And there's so many things that impact on you. Like, I mean, I think when you look at how someone can make ends meet given what they earn, and, I mean, that's what it comes down to, um, and and the, the big divide that exists. And, and the problem for me and what I like, what I talk about is 
the divide in people's understanding, people who who have incomes and, and that puts them in a certain position where they're able to make ends meet and cope, have very little understanding of what it's like at the other end for people who um, aren't. And, and also, same thing for me, the difference between seeing how city folk and regional folk um, survive, it's very different and, and there's a, a, a gap in understanding between those people too. And certainly when you when you add in the assumption that everybody's got transport, that everybody can get from one place to the other in a in a usable car, that's a pretty expensive process just at the moment. You know, it cost me a hundred bucks to come up to uh, stall the other week, and hundred bucks to get home. That's two hundred bucks. <laughs> that's for petrol. Yeah. Uh, and the presumption that you're going to have a car as well as the money to service it, but then also the presumption, and I know from living in areas like yours, the presumption that there's buses and trains because there's like three a day or two a day or two a week. or And that that's a reality that people who haven't had that experience have no idea that uh, that's, that's such a stopper for people. And then we also look at things like how able you are to express your needs verbally even. Um, how able you are to understand where is it do I go to get support as well as the services have to be there but understanding the processes I have to go through to get that support and have I got the the verbal skills and the computer skills and whatever skills to get myself into a position where I can access that and and for a lot of people they haven't like that's another statistic I talk about the 48 percent of Australians um, aren't literate aren't functionally literate in terms of being able to thoroughly understand how to read documents, fill them in, send them off, whatever. And then over that, I don't, I don't have research, but the the move to online access to so many things and companies and agencies think it's kind of clever to move to being online, but then how many people are they losing because they don't have online skills? and yet the way to access services to go online. And thank heavens phones do what they do now. And I, I mean, I'm, a, a number of people I've worked with have done great work at using, uh, helping people learn how to use their phone rather than having to have a computer to access forms and so forth. On, with the online forms, and I think this is also something you spoke about the other week, was how many of us when we signed up to things like, even something like Facebook or Twitter or Zoom as we're recording this, actually sit down and read the terms and conditions. No, no. And yet, and because it's in language and that's part of what we talk about, and I'm fascinated by that part of the work, that a whole lot of people speak in ways and and often they're well-meaning people who are delivering a service to people speak in ways that make it really difficult for ordinary folk to understand what they're talking about. And that's not being demeaning or putting people down. It's saying that the fact is that there's nearly 50% of us who who can't navigate that territory easily, you know. And, and I like to bring that home when I talk to people about I've got people in my family who are not computer literate. I've got people who aren't who would who would have trouble filling in a whole lot of forms. And I think that's true of a whole lot of Australians. Um, uh, and, and yet, as I said, agencies and the people who you need to support you have whacked everything up online. I, you know, I, I watched with fascination what happened during COVID where people realised you can't just put in a whole lot of information and, 
and expect people to then understand what's required of them and what's happening. You know, so it, it brings about a kind of panic. Yeah, COVID was, was really interesting. And, and for me, who's someone who works in the social media space, which, as I was explaining to my kids last night, wasn't a thing when I was their age. Um, no. No. Trying to get that messaging. And I, I don't want to say dumb it down because it's got negative connotations, but to keep it in simple, plain English for people to understand is a challenge because a lot of the stuff that comes to us from government agencies, for example, is very jargony. And then mm. you have to go in and break it down and make it simple for, you know, every way, everyday people just to, to be able to look at it and say, right, this is happening, this is happening, and, and how quickly things were changing as well. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was watching something. Was it last night, the thing about the ABC's 90th birthday? And they crossed to a couple of scientists or people that, that were talking about what's happening in the South Pole, of all things. But their whole conversation, I sat there thinking, what are you actually saying? Because <laughs> I didn't get it. And you, you get good when you set yourself that task of I'm, I'm going to make sure that the words I use are understandable uh, or people can get it. So understandable. What's another way of saying understand? You can get it. Um, you can get it easily is, you know, has to be in a context. It's not academic, all the rest of it, but forget it. Um, I need to make sure people can get what I'm talking about and that you can you can pass information on in ways that everyone can read it and get it. And there's whole layers of that because people will look at the way you speak. Like I suppose those scientists last night, they are so used to talking to other scientists that they fall into that and they forget that other people can't understand what they're saying. <laughs> um, and then even when they try to hand on information to you, I had one of my brothers was an industrial chemist. My God, if you ever asked him for help with your maths homework or any other homework, you had to have a spare hour and a half. And half of it went whoosh <laughs> because um, how, we, how we use language and how we talk to each other is, to me, a big part of what I talk to people about, about being careful that you're not being condescending and putting people down, but you, you're able to swap over to another way of talking to make sure people got what you were talking about. So being able to say to somebody, so do you get that? Instead of do you understand all the ramifications of what I just said? You know, it's both ways of saying, do you get that? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and, and like you said, I mean, if you if you walked into a, into a lab at a university, the, the language would be very very different if you walked onto a, a, a building site, for example. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's something that people don't necessarily think about. No. Kath, just to change tack for a minute, how'd you get into in working in this field? Well, I was a secondary school teacher um, for thirty years. That's where the grey hair comes from. I always say. Um, <laughs> But I loved it and um, got very involved towards the end of my career in um, professional learning for teachers. And very early in the day, I think we were doing the You Can Do It program, which is, um, which when you look at it, has got great ideas, but it's frightfully middle class. It presumes a whole lot of uh, things about families and kids' access to being able to do things. So, um, I, that was when I met Dr. Ruby Payne for the first time. She actually came to Tasmania and I did the training and that was like 20 years ago. And an amazing woman and with my teacher hat on, a, a really good educator who was really practical and talked about what kids and families needed 
you how they needed you to be able to explain yourself and and to connect with them and to understand them and then out of that came the bridges out of poverty work so i i um uh, for a while i tried to keep my teaching going as well as doing this cuz as doing being a consultant because it was just it changed how i taught it changed how i talked to people it changed so much about how i wanted to help schools organize um because that was my expertise but then 15 years ago i stopped teaching and did this full time which then moved me into the whole area of bridges out of poverty which is community health uh community agencies working with people who didn't have the same jargon as me who weren't interested in necessarily the educational functions of, of the work and more the communication and how do you how do you better support people mm. um so that's been fascinating i've got to go to remote indigenous communities i've been all over australia from western australia to to in queensland and and into tassie etc so it's been a hell of a ride because i get to go to places some of them in very real need and so wherever i go what i'm talking about has to morph and change it's not just the same old same old um so that's quite a a challenge and i've really enjoyed that you and i spoke the other week about some of the poverty that we see in some of the remote indigenous communities because i i worked in the northern territory for for a while and that got me out to some of the remote indigenous communities out in arnhem land and uh, for me, as a kid growing up in Ararat, I mm. saw things that I I didn't I didn't think I would see in Australia. Um, yes. Some of the levels of, of poverty, it, it was a real real eye opener, a real shock to me. Do you think people, especially people sort of in the southern parts of of the country, where we're probably a bit more sheltered about what's happening in some of the indigenous communities yeah. up, especially up north, really grasp the concept of just what level of poverty you might see up there? No. Totally not, totally not. And there's a guy on the BBC who visited Australia and he tends to go to the thorny ends of places. I should have his name in my head, but I haven't. And when he came, he went straight to the Aboriginal communities and there was quite an uproar about, you know, well, that's not representative of Australia. Well, actually, yes, it is. It's something we've got under another blanket and it's such a, in and of itself, there's such um so many issues and so many things that need to be addressed. And, and, and it's a big area. I, I, I find myself being heartened by the number of young Aboriginal people I see coming on board to, to work with their own people. People working with their own people is so important and understanding that the best person to talk to Karen people is another Karen person who you have helped uh, understand or you've promoted so that they can be the person to give the information and I'm seeing that more and more that there is there's there's more Aboriginal uh, writers there's more Aboriginal activists there's more people who are taking a political stance we have more people in parliament now which I think is great and it's it's all about people truth-telling you know the drover's wife the movie you know it's a hard watch but it's well worth watching um, because it brings home. There's a whole lot of things we've got under blankets and, and poverty is very much one of them because um, it's considered, it's something we'd rather not have, but it's, and we know it's over there somewhere, but we don't look at it. And I think that's what happens. The more remote you are, the less people actually understand. And, you know, I worked in um, New South Wales and, I uh, decided, my husband and I did a bit of a road trip to get there, and the first thing I said was, you know, politicians need to drive into this place 
not fly into it because what you see when you drive through regional uh, central New South Wales, you know, these towns that have obviously been prosperous little places that are just dying on their hinges, you know, and 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 that happens in Victoria as well, as well as Queensland, you know, the more the as people leave remote areas. Yeah, um, and it is something that we see, especially as you head further away from the bigger centres, from your, your Ballarats, your Geelongs, your Melbournes, your Bendigos. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's places up in the Wimmera Mallee that are that are really struggling, even around around here. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's little towns that are just holding on, which is mm-hmm. actually quite sad. I think that that sense of community is also a big, a big thing that, that's missing. And I don't know what, what your take on it is because you're far more knowledgeable in this subject than me, even though I recently completed the Bridges of Training and have the book right next to me. Um, <laughs> do you think that, that that sort of loss of community in, in some places is, a, is an mm. effect on the, 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 area, the, the level of poverty in that area? Yeah, totally. And I find myself saying, why do we wait for a disaster to come together as a community? Because we do. Like um, just over here from where I lived, Labatouche, which was in the fires that were, oh, I don't know how, when, how long ago was that? It was not the last lot of fires, the fires before. There's a terrific community centre in Labatouche. I went there for something or other. And here's a men's shed and the quilters thing and when people get together and they're very supportive because the fires just ripped through there and they came together to support each other, like the people from Malacuta are saying. They, they want a Republic of Malacuta because they want to make sure because that's another thing. We try to be very practical or I try to be really practical in the work that being careful about the kind of assistance and aid you give to people um, where uh, there are bushfire relief things that do wonderful, wonderful work. But then there's circumstances where people have had a thumping great big building built, but that isn't what they needed. And I think that television show about the Republic of Malakuta saying, we know what we need. Can you speak with us first and the planning come from us out? And there you have communities. When communities get together, and I've lived in a number of, of um, or a couple of, of regional communities where if you went into the pub, there'd be some 1970s hippies, there'd be fifth-generation farmers, there'd be people who'd never lived in the circumstance of being a farmer before, and and everyone was accepted, you know, back in the hobby farmer era, which, I mean, it was kind of frowned upon as a land-use way to be hobby farming instead of broadacre farming. But in the pub, people got along well. And people acted as a community and their kids went to school as a community. So I've lived and had that experience where the community came together and did look after each other and did know how important the little hall is. We've got a little hall up here that um, brings us together. And where I live is sort of, it's kind of, there's no reason for it to exist anymore (laughs) other than the hall and the CFO building. Um, But we're all still here and we all gather and we do have a sense of looking out for each other and sharing food, sharing veggies and sharing whatever. But I think it's that that sense of community and making a commitment to looking out for the people around you and listening to who all those people are and not ostracising people because they're from somewhere else or they don't speak the same as you, but coming on board to whoever the person is, hearing what they need from your community and embracing that is a big one, makes it a better place to live. 
Absolutely. And, and look where I live, we, we have a monthly community dinner, which is great. And everyone gets together. Uh, I think it's at the hall this month, but, uh, usually down at the, at the, the footy club rooms and sport is, and sporting clubs, especially in small communities are often that hub. I mean, a, a town like Moiston, yeah. we don't have a pub. Pub burnt down decades ago. And there was never one rebuilt. So the school and, and the, uh, the football club are the, the main social hubs. And yeah, if people are ostracized or yeah, or the whole, yeah. Or they, they feel uncomfortable accessing, you know, those sort of things that can, can definitely lead to that. How do we break the cycle? This is probably a really big and hell on a piece of string question, but some of the best ways that we can go about breaking that cycle. I think making sure that everybody is heard, but also that or bringing, giving people a chance to gather so that everybody is heard. Um, but also being practical in what you're doing, hearing what people from Moiston need, hearing what people from Mount Eccles need. You know, see, I was just thinking, well, there's a Mount Eccles netball club. There's no netball courts up here. Years ago there there must have been and a club formed, but those people all live way over there. They don't live here anymore. So there's there's this sort of surrogate uh, netball club that doesn't actually exist in the community anymore because so it's it's bringing your community together in a way that celebrates what's here and celebrates the people who are here and have been here for a long time and at the same time being very welcoming to anybody new who turns up which is what's happened in this community so people driving around and calling in inviting people to the hall making um the Christmas in July, accessible to everybody. It's being open to how different people are and whatever their story is, and the stories can be so multi, multi-layered. Just being open to their story is different to my story, but coming saying let's come together because we're all in this together in an area uh, is what really drives community, I think, being open to how different people can be and how different their needs can be. And so how do you go about providing the services people need? You know, and I think I talked about in the training, especially to listen to people who have the lived experience. You know, I talk about the lady who who's in a, a single mum who doesn't, who has the occasional time where she hasn't got enough money for food and to be able to access a can of baked beans quick and easy, mm. you know. So, yeah. Part of that is, is removing some of the stigma around people going to access that help too. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there shouldn't be any shame for someone who's, who's doing it tough to go to the local neighbourhood house mm-hmm. and pick up, you know, some, some essentials. Do you think that, and I don't like to talk politics on this, this show because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's apolitical. Do you think that politicians of, of either, of either stripe really understand and really hear what people are telling them? I mean, we had politicians recently who said, if you want to get a, a better house, go get a better job as if mm. it's, it's that simple. Well, this talk, my work talks about your economic reality. And the fact is there's an economic reality that is two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year and there's an economic reality that's twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, and there's a there's a divide in understanding. And I think the difficulty is that education and power are stacked 
at one end of that understanding. And there's a big gap, like a politician saying, I can survive on $40 a day. It's not disposable income. It's all you've got to pay for everything. And that that divide or people are judging. When you look at the research into poverty, um, it falls into four main areas. The first one being the actions of individuals, and that's what people hone in on often. It's what media and and some politicians will hone in on. What's an individual doing uh, that's putting them into that circumstance? Then the, the next area of research looks at what's happened economically in an area, in a community like Moyston, like what sort of crops are grown, what's happening economically in that town that impacts on people's well-being and their capacity to be able to live well. Um, and then there's exploitation, which is a huge area in in Australia that goes undercover. The amount of money that is accessed by people from dodgy lenders, the amount of advertising on daytime television that makes dodgy lending or gambling seem like a good way for me to, to get what I need. Um, and it's quite insidious, And so there's a whole area about exploitation and then there's a whole area that sits with the politicians and the kind of policies that make decisions on people's behalf. Like often when I talk about food security, people are shocked to realise that the big supermarkets have A, B and C grade supermarkets. The A grade supermarkets are in wealthy suburbs and then there's B and C and they still have product but the product isn't as good and the product is often dearer in areas where people are doing it tough than it is in areas where people aren't doing it. So it's there's those kinds of, how can you have laws like that? How can you have laws that allow people to be dodgy lenders of money, um, to, to predate, to be predatory uh, on the very people who need the most help? And and they're there, you know, lend, payday lenders and, and cash converters and people like that. Yeah, even in places places like some of the the big electoral chains who interest free for you know yes. x amount of time, but then they don't tell you how much the interest is going to be. Or they do in very small, very oh. tiny fine print that yeah, the stuff goes, you don't read. I accept yeah. that conditions. Yep, um, and that's an interesting one to bring up um, because if somebody takes on a dodgy loan. Um, because they need 3000 bucks in a hurry and there's no way they can get it from anywhere else. So the area of research that impacts on that is exploitation, possibly what's happening economically in that person's community. But when people think and talk about it or it's on them, it goes straight to the individual action. That person chose to take out a dodgy loan. What were they thinking? Why didn't they? And so my work gets people to consider why the person took that dodgy loan um, and and the tyranny of being in, I need to be able to feed my kids. I need to be able to put a roof over their heads. I need what I can't always have. So I'll take that on because I want it solved for myself now. And people don't understand how difficult it is when you've got a lot going on for yourself. Um, you might make a decision about money that isn't the best decision financially. But when you've got nothing else, people will go for it. So don't shame and blame them. Look at why they're doing it. They're doing it because there's people making that sort of predatory arrangement available. And economically, there's no other way for that person to get support they need. 
I mean, this this is a fascinating subject, Kath, and, and we could probably talk about it for hours. It's, um, but we, we might have to, yeah, <laughs> we, we might have to have to wrap it up there. I'm getting the hurry up from Zoom. Um, yep. I, I really appreciate you giving up some time to come and have a chat. It's, it's a fascinating subject, and and um, I'd love to talk about it further um, on another episode down the track if you'd be happy with that. Absolutely, yeah. I'd like to keep in contact, and because uh, the the first thing is just awareness raising. People are doing it tough. And so how do we support them? Absolutely. Yeah. Kath, thank you so much for giving up the time. I really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast. Not a problem. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you once again to Kath Herbert for coming on and talking about poverty and uh, said hopefully we'll be getting Kath to come back and do another few episodes and really delve deep into this fascinating subject that as you heard touches over three million Australians three and a half million Australians which is just mind-boggling I was stunned when I heard that a few weeks ago so uh, really interesting topic this podcast is the community is a middle name podcast and it's brought to you by Grandpa's Community Health Grandpa's Community Health offers a wide range of services across Western Victoria, servicing the following local government areas, the Northern Grampian Shire Council, Arrow Rural City, Horsham Rural City, West Wimmera Shire, Hindmarsh Shire, Yarriambiak Shire, Bull Oak Shire, Southern Grampian Shire, Pyrenees Shire and Central Goldfield Shire. Services available from Grampian's Community Health include alcohol and other drug support, carer support, family violence support, Gambler's help, aged care and community support, including NDIS support coordination and plan management, mental health services, counselling across a massive wide range of areas, and so much more. For more information, give us a call, 53587400, Monday to Fridays, or hit up our website, which is gch.org.au. You can also visit us on site in Stall, Horsham, and Ararat. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter. So search for Grampians Community Health on Facebook or type in facebook.com slash Grampians Community Health. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter is at GCHGrampians, all one word. And you can uh, see what's happening in, in the world of social media and in the world of GCH. You can also, if you like this podcast and you think you want to hear more, it's available everywhere good podcasts are found, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, TuneIn, Audible by uh, Amazon, uh, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from, you'll be able to find Communities of a Name podcast. Subscribe and, uh, and you'll never miss an episode. And if you rate the show as well, it also helps people find us. And feel free to share any episodes, anything you think people might uh, get something out of listening to in amongst your circle of friends or on your own social media. We're um, definitely cool with all that. The intro and outro music is an original composition that was performed by Andrew Parsons, and he composed that especially for this podcast, and we use that with his permission, and we give him our thanks. And this podcast was recorded and produced on the traditional lands of the Jabwarong people, and we'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Speaking of elders past, present, and emerging, next week we're going to be speaking to a couple of students from Stall Secondary about NADOC Week, so make sure you uh, you tune in for that one. It's uh, 
It's going to be a, it's a good chat. Uh, some great stuff happening up there with some of the uh, local Indigenous students. Until then, my name's Gareth Olver. I hope you guys have enjoyed the show and uh, I'll talk to you again next week. Until then, so long. And remember that Grampians Community Health is, of course, here for you, your family and our community.